it, I just I just knew he was going to get there and not find anything. Well, lo and behold, uh, Joe had done this many many years and knew good locations, what to look for, and we did we did have some luck finding a nest. Uh, I climbed my own tree, uh, pulled my own goshawk, uh, lowered it down for inspection for Joe to make sure that was a female. He confirmed it was a female and and. Uh, it, it, then it was I was off and running. I mean that was the like the the second best thing in my falconry career was getting my first goshawk in Wyoming, finding it, pulling it myself, and, and manning it down myself. Uh, outside of catching my first rabbit with my red tail, that's the second most highlight of my career right there. Hello everyone, welcome back for another fun-filled falconry podcast brought to you by the Falconry Fund. Fun information found in this podcast, including how to donate, fund activities, podcast information, including disclaimers, and contact info can also be found on the website at www.falconryfund.org. And this week's episode brings you all close to my home, home being southern Indiana that is, particularly around the Evansville area. And our guest this week also happens to be one of the very first falconers that I started getting out with almost every weekend whenever I was first bitten by the falconry bug a handful of years ago. As a matter of fact, the very first head of game that I ever took with a trained raptor was with our guest, uh, Goshawk Dixie. And she'll actually be mentioned a few times in this episode, but I'll definitely never forget that particular hunting experience because I know after that, for me, I was sold. I wanted to get out every weekend. I wanted to learn. And I was definitely motivated to do everything in my power that I could to earn my sponsorship. And I've also seen several other falconers who, after seeing Mark's goshawks fly, were either instantly bitten by the exhibitor bug in general or decided to go ahead and give goshawks a try the following season or whenever it was physically possible for them to get their hands on one and train one up, which I think is a real testament to the success that Marcus had with goshawks. So on that note, I'm going to go ahead and turn you all over to the Southern Director of the Indiana Falconer Association and my friend and fellow Southern Indiana Falconer, Mark Herman. All right, and three, two, one. How's it going, everybody? It's John Munyer again. I'm here uh, today with uh, one of my fellow Southern Indiana Falconers, who also happens to be our Southern Director for our um, state club, the Indiana Falconers Association. This is uh, Mark Herman. How's it going, Mark? Uh, I'm doing good, John. Welcome to the house, and, and glad you had a safe trip back from Utah. Thanks, thanks. Well, what did you think of the Falcon? That's it's really, really something different. You don't see a lot of them around here in Southern Indiana. Um, as far as I know, you're the only one that's uh, flying one at this point. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, for, for everyone listening, basically, I just got back from Utah and, and uh, just got done pulling a... Uh, prairie falcon and whatnot and um i just came up here to uh, present mr falcon with his first uh quail live quail that is and uh mark was nice enough to hook me up with one of his uh quail to give that little test run and looked like it did pretty well it so, did yeah, it did yeah. it really he really took right after it uh, for first time ever seeing live game uh went, went right after it yeah yeah no it's it's always fun always a good time so basically uh want to go ahead and start off with just the the typical um typical starting question basically one of the goals of the podcast is to is to find out you know different stories and different uh aspects of falconry from different uh perspectives and whatnot so go ahead and start off by uh just telling everyone a little bit about your um initial interest in the sport and how you got into it and uh yeah go yeah. ahead now sure john uh I've always been a hunter uh, since I was probably old enough to walk. Um, the initial start in the falconry, though, that all come as kind of a, all oh, kind of like a surprise. It all just pieces all fell together. I was turkey hunting uh, one year and uh, happened to look out across the cornfield and uh, happened to see a wounded bird. Couldn't fly. Watched him for a while, hopping around. He he couldn't take the flight, so I knew he was hurt. And, uh, once I decided tur- turkeys wasn't going to work out that morning, I went out there and, of course, it took off running. And I threw my turkey vest over it, and lo and behold, when I got home, it was uh, I found out that I had uh, rescued a peregrine falcon, huh. which is uh, something unusual here in southern Indiana. Very, very. Now, uh, not being from a, a uh, raptor background, I had no idea. Just another chicken hawk, you know, just like everybody. <laughs> So i uh, done a little Googling, uh, put it in a spare dog pen that I had, and uh, started collecting some starlings and, and whatnot to, to, to feed it. And uh, wasn't long I realized 
it was probably highly illegal for me to even have it. <laughs> so I contacted a falconer uh, from the Evansville area, whose name I'd gotten from the the uh, conservation officer or local conservation officer, and his name was Joe Catahenry. So I called him and uh, told him my dilemma with this peregrine. Of course, he swore up and down I had a Cooper's hawk, and, <laughs> and uh, I sent him a picture, and, and lo and behold, he says, you do have a peregrine, and, and he was on the way. Yeah, old and Joe. Old Joe, yeah. He, he came down and, and uh, uh, collected the peregrine and, and gave me a whole slew of numbers because the uh, I had done reported it to the conservation officers and to the DNR that I'd had this. And I wanted to let them know where, what I'd done with it, where the bird went, uh, just to stay lawful. And uh, Joe gave me all of his credentials and, and uh, took the bird back with him. And uh, I was lucky enough to get his phone number, and he donated it to the Wesselman Rehab Center in Evansville, Indiana, where they used it for show. And uh, it, it had, a, had a broken wing that they expect it had flew into a wire or something because it was cut really all the way through the bone, so it would never fly again. Mm-hmm. And uh, told it, Joel I'd like for him to keep in contact with me, So, right. and, so and as he did. So the bird did live. So it, it, it was, did. There was, a, uh, I guess, more or less a semi-happy, semi-happy ending. Yes, yes. It, 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 <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it lived for quite a while, actually. And... Uh, me and Joe had stayed in contact, and, and uh, he invited me on a, a goshawk hunt that he had had goshawks at that time. And, and of course, I wasn't going to resist that. Being from a hunting background, it was like the most unbelievable thing I'd ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. So to make a long story short, uh, we became best of friends, uh, built my muse. He signed me on as his apprentice, and uh, pretty well the rest is history. How much of a time gap was there between um, the the finding the the peregrine and then the, the the start of the apprenticeship? About how much of a time went 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 by during that time span? That was about a that was about a year for me. I actually uh, went through it pretty quickly because me and Joe had developed a good friendship before mm-hmm. I had even started the falconry program. So uh, so by the time I was interested in in uh, doing falconry, me and Joe was already pretty tight and uh he, he accepted me as his as a sponsor and showed me how to build my muse and once we got that all approved and stuff then we was off to trap my first red tail cool so how was your first red tail male or female and and how basically was was that first bird for you yeah it was uh uh, of course, I was green. Uh, you know, we built built my BC trap. Me and Joe, we went out trapping that first day, and uh, it was kind of funny. I had no idea how this was all going to even go down. <laughs> we had finally seen an immature setting on a pole, and uh, as we drove by it, I told Joe that I didn't see a red a red tail, that that might have been an immature, and he said, yes, it was. He said, well, uh, we'll trap that one. So I said, well, what are we going to go up here and turn around and set the trap out? And he goes, nope, done threw the trap out. We're ready to go. <laughs> and uh, so we, we trapped that one, and it was a female. It was a female red tail, and it, uh, it went pretty fast. About two and a half to three weeks, I, I was, had caught my first rabbit with it, and it missed the first rabbit that it had ever seen. And I looked straight at Joe. Like I said, we'd developed a relationship <laughs> before this, so... Uh, uh, I told him, I, I, I just told Joe, I knew this wasn't going to work. There's just no way this bird's going to catch this rabbit. And sure enough, it didn't. Mm-hmm. Well, he shook his head and laughed and threw it back up. So yeah. I threw it back up. And the second one got up. I heard the squeal under a sticker bush, and I absolutely could not believe it. Yeah. It was the most unbelievable thing that I had ever done in my hunting career. Jeez. Well, I think that first those those first squeals for, for everybody uh, that gets into the sport are always the... Uh, the, the most special uh, so to speak they, they it's it's always the most resounding thing that that everybody remembers the, the first uh the first catch of live quarry with the first bird and whatnot so go ahead and take us through the the, the rest of that first year then uh, yeah. what, what 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 happened after that the uh, so i'd caught i don't know four or five and uh joe had always warned me about the transformers and and you know flying too close to traffic and uh, there was a time then i finally pushed my luck and and sure enough she pitched up on a on a uh, transformer and uh got electrocuted yeah so that 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 was like the high of the high and the lowest of the lows sure so to keep my spirits up we uh applied for another band and i, I trapped a second one and uh finished out the year with that with that second one and 
and uh, then to skip all the way through and of course then the second year took that bird through the molt second year caught game uh, made it all the way through the uh, apprenticeship and then it was time for to sign on to as a general and then that's when the that's when the oecipiter bug bit me and mm-hmm. uh, away we went gotcha so, yeah so basically uh I know you had, I've heard stories, obviously, of, of your, of the first female and then, you know, the, the male, um, red tail that you had. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, was the second one, Sledge. Sledge, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what did you think about the difference between the female and, and the male? Um, That's a good point. And since I've flown both of them, um, uh, there, there is a difference that I noticed. And of course, there's difference between female and female, but the biggest difference that I noticed that was obvious between the, the flying of the female and the flying of the tersel was the female that I had. It was more of a, a bomb, you know, crash through, grab the rabbit, and the ter- and the tersel could do the same. But it was so much more flighty. Mm-hmm. It was more of a uh, a separator type flight. Real, just shoot straight up ninety degrees up the tree, uh, a lot faster. I, I just it was more aerial, and gotcha. and, I, and I really really thought that was something with that. And if I was to go back to a red tail other than uh, doing jackrabbits, I, w- I would probably trap another tersel myself. I just love the flight of the tersel. Well, I know you and I have had that conversation many a times, and I'm, I've not flown a, obviously, I've only ever flown the, my, my very first red tail. But if I was to fly uh, another red tail again, it would probably be another another male for me as well. Just I, I've I've seen enough females and it's impressive and whatnot. But I, I like the more aerial uh, flights and whatnot also. And uh, I think you know obviously if I was really wanting to hunt squirrels or, or something, I would look maybe for a thicker footed you know female or, or something like that also. But I mean as far as cottontails and everything else, I think we're both in agreement yeah, that, I agree that, there's, there's, that there's really nothing that, that a, a female and a male can't do any better than the other as far as just cottontails. And it's going to be, I, in my humble opinion, and I thank yours as well, that uh, a male is going to be so much more fun to watch, you know, the pursuit and everything else because of all the reasons that you just cited. So Yeah, exactly. And, and the, uh, uh, of course, the end result is, is to catch game, catch your rabbit, cottontail. And since that's what we have around here is cottontails, and that's what we pursue, uh, if both will do it and one does it with a little more style and a little more pizzazz. It's fun. It's, it's a, fun. Little, a little more fun. Then, then, then that's the way I would want to go. Sure. Sure. No, I agree. Um, so now if I remember right also, there was a, there was a short inter- intermediate um, – kind of interval where you you tried a, a passage cooper or something like that too right in between that I, I, I did i did as, as i was getting into my general um of course my sponsor joe Cata henry he's big acipiter guy and and that's all he had was goshawks which really impressed me well since we don't have goshawks here and you know wyoming and and minnesota and all farther away we've got cooper's hawks in the backyard upon the uh, advice not to do it from my sponsor. <laughs> I thought it'd be a good idea for me to get a passage coop for my first occipiter. Right. Well, I, <laughs> I, he and Joe helped me as best he could, and I did have luck with it. I did catch uh, some little ditch birds and and a, and a few uh, crows and a, a few things like that. But it was short lived. Uh-huh. It, it wasn't for me. Yeah. Uh, it, it's for a lot of people, but for someone that didn't have any occipiter experience. It was a tall order. A passage coop was a tall order for me. Yeah. Uh, but but I did manage to keep it alive. I released it. Uh, I did catch game with it. So for me, that was a success. Yeah. But well, did you, did, I, you, didn't, did, you didn't kill it. No, no. <laughs> and, didn't, and, uh, for, for a lot of people, I mean, just keeping one alive is, is a tall order. Right. But the um, did I enjoy it? Uh, no, it was too much work yeah. for not knowing what I was doing. Yeah. It, it was it was too it was too stressful for me at that time. Mm. So so I, I that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done it, but I did it. I'm glad I did it. Uh, it's a whole whole together different deal than than doing the is. I mean, really, was it a mistake though? Because it was still a learning experience. I mean, you, yeah, you, that, you, that is correct, you know, and, and and no harm come out of it, right? But yeah. and, and, but Joe told me if I can do this one, if I can do this passage coup. Early, this early in my falconry career, mm-hmm. then count that as a success. Sure. And uh, he said, if you can catch birds and keep it alive, 
count yourself as a success with your passage coupe. And I did yeah. do that. So well, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more than a lot of people. I mean, you remember the passage coupe I tried and I had to keep it so, so flipping low that, you know, I didn't want to do anything but sit on the glove half the time. And I remember <laughs> one time we tried the, the one baggie and got done and I just looked at you. I already knew what the answer was going to be. And just like, yeah, so, uh, so what'd you think of that? He's like, well, I, I go home right now and cut those anklets off and turn that thing loose like right now <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but no it's it's uh they're 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 tough birds yeah. i mean they're they're definitely different out of curiosity was that was that bird um that passage coop that you had was it trapped more in the country or was it was it more a city bird that was a country bird okay that was a country bird there was one hanging at my buddy's house uh that was hanging in his back tree, and I just took my Swedish goss trap over there with a pigeon in it. And mm-hmm. by the time I got back to the truck, I had it. Yeah. So, uh, they're, they're, if you got pigeons around, they're not too hard to come by. Right. So, I still wonder if there's not some validity to the uh, the theory that getting a, a city coop instead of more of a, a country coop might might have better luck since it's already been around people and seen, you know cars and and people and dogs and everything else you know and a little bit more than than the country coops but uh, who knows yeah I, yeah and and you may be onto something there because uh um i've pulled quite a few coops out mm-hmm. of out of the nest for for different falconers as isis mm-hmm. and i i can tell you when we do an in-town coop mm-hmm. or a, an in-town red shoulder compared to the country birds mm-hmm. There is an obvious difference in the way they act. Yeah, they really do. I, I just, I just think it would make automatic sense that they would be a little bit easier to man. Yeah. Then. But anyway, so so moving on from the coop, then after the coop is when you when you did your first goss. Then that is correct. Okay. We uh, uh, after I cut the coop loose, uh, me and Joe had scheduled a trip to Wyoming with a few other falconers. Uh, I got my permit and and uh my take permit for wyoming and and off to wyoming we went yeah. and uh it, i just i just knew he was going to get there and not find anything <laughs> well lo and behold uh joe had done this many many years and knew good locations what to look for and we did we did have some luck finding a nest uh, i climbed my own tree uh pulled my own goshawk uh, lowered it down for inspection for joe to make sure that was a female he confirmed it was a female and and uh it, then it was I was off and running. I mean that was the like the the second best thing in my falconry mm-hmm. career was getting my first goshawk in Wyoming, finding it, pulling it myself, and and uh, and, and manning it down myself. Uh, mm-hmm. Outside of catching my first rabbit with my red tail, that's that's the second most highlight of my career right there. Very cool. So so that was Dixie, correct? That was Dixie. Okay. Yes. So for everyone listening, also Dixie. Mark's had for what seven or eight years now. Uh, she's going yeah. on eight now. One of the one of the better goshawks that you'll probably end up watching hunt. Um, she is an absolute terror on anything from cottontails to ducks to uh, jackrabbits, and a lot of fun to watch fly. So Dixie was more of a um, uh, a late pulled bird, correct? That is, that is correct. Yeah. She was uh, she was getting pretty old. Her her. Uh, um, um, Feathers were just just breaking the sheaths when I when I pulled her out of the nest. The whole uh, don't pull if there's fear to be shown. Mm-hmm. Well, you can forget that. I mean these <laughs> these dudes they had the fear, and uh, of course I wasn't expecting them to be that old. So naturally I didn't have any falconry gloves or anything. So uh, I'd have them for a while and they'd have me for a while. Yeah. And with three of them in the nest, it was a it was a well I was getting my fair share. Yeah, I bet. So uh, but but yeah, she was a little bit older. Um, I told Joel they're, they're, they were older when I hollered down. He said, wet out of the egg or just about to jump out of the nest. He said, we'll make it work. As long as they're in the nest and they can't fly, pull one. Mm-hmm. And I did. And, and uh, uh, it, it worked out really well. Having done one now that was a little bit older, that did have fear, and also hard imprinting one that had zero fear, still in the very early downy stages and whatnot, mm-hmm. what's the difference? Okay. What, what's your what, thoughts on that? What, I, what I've seen, uh, I've pulled a real young one out of the nest as an IS. Mm-hmm. I have, have purchased one from Dennis Samney, mm-hmm. uh, which I have now also, and I still also have Dixie. Mm-hmm. The difference that I've seen, it seems like they come together. Mm-hmm. The, the difference is, is early in the stage, from what my experience is, uh, with the real little downies, 
there is zero fear. Mm -hmm. So any mistake it seemed like that I made in handling, uh, uh, manning, any mistake was amplified. Right. Whereas with Dixie, since she was a little older, had a little fear, it was more like she was a little more forgiving mm -hmm. uh, because that was my first receptor, and of course I made mistakes. Right. So it was a little more forgiving with the, with the older one, but like I said, then they come together after the manning process and hard pinned, and you're you're out to to uh, chase chase game. Mm -hmm. It seems at that point, then. Uh, although Dixie's a really good bird, the one the one that I purchased and the the young one that I had had pulled out of the nest, it seems like they all done really well hunting. Right. The the manning of the young ones also didn't seem to affect the hunting ability. It was the ability to get your bird back, uh, some fears of trains, cars, dogs, that type of stuff. Right. And all of that is kind of contributed to the way that I have to do it mm -hmm. um, and the way that I choose to do it. Mm -hmm. um, definitely, um, you can you can do the layman procedure. You can do the recipe with Mike McDermott. And I just kind of had to do my own thing because naturally I work for a living and, and I'm not going to have my goshawk in the house for three months. Mm -hmm. It's just the wife's not going to stand for it. And uh, <laughs> uh, so as soon as they were able to, to make it out in the muse, I moved them out. That's a mistake, I feel like, as far as the manning process, mm -hmm. because I know guys that keep their birds for three months straight in the house, 100% sure, yeah. socialization, it does make a difference. Definitely. No doubt. Definitely. Well, I mean, any any amount, it doesn't matter if it's a passage bird to uh, all the way down to a downy, the more they, they're around people, the, the better off they're going to be, for the most part, for sure. But all that being said, I mean, overall, which one would you prefer at this point? Um... That, now that I've had some occipiter experience, I, I think I would prefer uh, a purchased bird, a, a young purchased bird that's 100% imprinted. Mm -hmm. I like those because you get the best of both worlds. You get the, the great hunting ability mm -hmm. of the goshawk, mm -hmm. plus you get the 100% the attention uh, to the falconer as far as being able to get it back, man it down. It was much easier than what it was with Dixie, who was a mm -hmm. little older Ias. It, it seemed to be, and then your end result is a little bit easier as far as getting her back and, and different things. I have a little trouble getting Dixie back. Uh, the window's not quite as big as, as it is, is with a, uh, uh, like a purchase bird. Yeah, a full imprint. A full imprint. Yeah. So, uh, you get, you get some benefits both, both ways. Um, with Dixie, the mistakes that I made, she didn't seem to hold too much of a grudge. Right. Zero aggression, that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. With the 100% uh, imprint, mm -hmm. it seemed like any mistake that, <laughs> that that I made, I paid for it. Yeah, I witnessed a few of those. Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it was a learning curve. and, yeah. and, and But now that I, I feel like I've got a, a little better handle on how to do it, I, I, I would, uh, if I had to do it other outside the money aspect of it, which a trip to Wyoming from southern Indiana, taking off work, buying the permit, gas, van rental. I'm, I'm not really a whole lot cheaper off than just purchasing one for anywhere from the thousand to eighteen hundred dollar range uh, that's they're both compatible right. the only thing you're missing out on obviously is the experience exactly yeah. and and i'm, I'm and i there again uh, whether it was my first goshawk which meant a lot of uh, but climbing the tree finding the nest that does that does mean something it, it is it is about the experience well, sure how can it not i mean you're you've you've put in all that work and heck even when we went a couple years ago i mean how many miles was it 50 something miles yes. i mean just to find Yes. eight inactive nests and, and one barely active one <laughs> that, that, that is true yeah it was 52 miles and 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 one active nest that had three older chicks in it that were small um mm -hmm. it was a bad year uh but nonetheless i mean it, it was it was a big relief to even find that one nest mm -hmm. so that's that's another thing i, I kind of want to touch on a little bit too is i mean one of the other podcast just recently did was kind of talking about that you know the the experience part of it mm -hmm. and um you know they it was brought up that everybody should should experience that at least a couple times and should go through um the the steps that that you have to go through to kind of find your own bird 
climb mm. up and get your own bird if obviously you're you're physically capable of doing that right. um taking the time to search out your own nest how to do it right. and all that and all that kind of stuff so whenever i mean obviously you had a, a good teacher in joe who already knew how to to, to find these nests and, and the signs yes. and everything to look for and everything. Yes. What would you tell someone who, who wants the experience, um, you know, whether it be Wyoming or Minnesota or Wisconsin or Utah, wherever it may be, what would you kind of step-by-step tell someone who's not done it before how to go about finding their own nest? I know it's a really broad kind of mm-hmm. all-encompassing question, sure. but but just, you know, from a green standpoint, how, how would you go about doing that? Yeah, um, and, and I agree 100%. Um, even if it's something that, that you're really not interested in as far as climbing the tree or what have you, the experience of finding your own bird and being able to pull your own bird and, and, and man it down and, and all that, it, it, it means a whole lot. It really does. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're not doing that, you're really missing out on a good, a good side of falconry because mm-hmm. it really is rewarding. Um, as far as how to get started, it's really not rocket science. Um, it all starts at home in the living room. Um, the area you want to look, whether you be in Utah, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Wyoming, New Mexico, wherever the area is that you may want to look, you would start with the Google Earth Maps. From there, uh, you could type in like uh, the biology of New Mexico goshawk, mm-hmm. and there will be a Wikipedia or some information on there about their nesting cycle, timelines, areas that they like to habitat. Uh, the birds in uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin, they they will nest in in uh, deciduous, but they like conifers also. In Wyoming, we simply find them in quake and aspen and uh, and pine trees. Mm-hmm. So, you, you th- those would be important areas that you would want to learn on as far as as where do I need to look? And that's where Google Earth comes in. You can pull up a wintertime photo of an area, and the reason you use wintertime is because the leaves haven't uh, turned green yet in the winter. So your pine your pine lots really stand out. Okay, yeah. So if you're in a if you're in an area where they they mostly like to nest in pines, they the pine lots jump out at you. Mm-hmm. Then you you get a, a GPS coordinates on these pine lots. Now, if it's in the middle of a city park or between two busy highways, you can mark it off. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to use a little bit of uh, discretion. Discretion sure. on yeah, this is on the side of a mountain. There's no main roads other than this logging road going right up through the middle of this pine lot. It's surrounded by hardwoods. Got a got a swamp in front of it. Those are items that you would want to look for. Mark it down, and then the footwork comes in. You would establish your timeline. If you're lucky enough to live in the area where you can use an a, a, a electronic collar, that takes a lot of the work out of it. You've established your timeline, and that usually works during the nest building time and after the chicks are hatched. During the egg brooding time, you can forget it. They're yeah. not going to answer. Gotcha. So pull up your... Um, Timeline. If you figure that your chicks are hatching at uh, uh, end of June, first of July, then uh, you would want to back up 32 days or so, and uh, uh, during the nest building period, uh, play your call. Go in there with a, a, an agitated goshawk, which you can pull off the internet. Also, uh, we use Turbo Dog from Primos. <laughs> They're easy to download. Uh, the, the call is good and crisp and clear, and it works really well. That's that's what we use. And uh, if you get into a lot, a pine lot, where they're actively building a nest, and it's early in the morning or late in the evening, and you turn that call on, if they're in there, you'll know it. Gotcha. And then just uh, mark it GPS coordinates, and then come back in, oh, you know, a couple weeks, two or three weeks, and, and uh, see if she's brooding her eggs. If she is, then don't return until, you know, the time frame that the chicks should be hatched right that's how we do it and which which is about how long of a time frame from, from about 32 to 35 days okay uh is usually the the gestation period on the eggs so uh and that's the the location of nests in general uh places is somewhat of a a secret mm-hmm. to say the least right so, but general information on goshawks in that state is is pretty well public interest so so you can get on biological websites and and uh, 
uh, it'll, it'll tell you usually about when goshawks will hatch in that particular state. They've done studies and stuff, and, 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 and then you can just back up your dates to establish your calling time frame. So you've done all the work. You've climbed up. You've pulled your own chick, no matter how old it is. Exactly. <laughs> as, long, as long as it's <laughs> incapable of flight, she's good to go the way I said. Yeah. So, because it's not like you're going to, well, unless you're just ultra picky and you live around there and yes. you can just go climb a bunch within a, a day's worth of a, of a trip or whatever. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. Man, that was a lot of work. I, I still remember all that deadfall, man. That was yes. crazy. Yeah, it's, but, uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a job, especially in Wyoming. Uh, it's not quite as much work in Minnesota and Wisconsin, but each one of those states also has their challenges. Wisconsin's got a lot of laws, mm-hmm. a lot of do's and don'ts, uh, where you can pull, where you can't pull. Uh, the logging is, is almost rampant in mm-hmm. wisconsin yeah. so just whenever you think you've got yourself located on a good nest mm-hmm. uh don't don't count yourself in just yet yeah just but, like just like this this year right? exactly <laughs> and we had lost a nest due to logging so uh and minnesota has its challenges although minnesota take permits are free mm-hmm. uh the challenges of minnesota is the vastness mm-hmm. minnesota is so huge with their pine lots and their national forests and you have to watch the uh, the Indian reservations. Mm-hmm. You, you have to make sure you you're not in those, and so it has its own challenges also. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of good points. A lot of good points. Every every state's different. It has its own issues for sure. Hey everyone, hope you've been enjoying listening to another episode of the Falconry Fund podcast. Just as a reminder, the Falconry Fund is an organization that's dedicated to preserving and protecting the art of falconry in North America and abroad, and any contribution that you make to the Falconry Fund will further preserve and continue the tradition and legacy of the sport for those individuals, both past, present, and future, that have dedicated themselves to its lifestyle and practice, as well as bringing you future content. The other cool thing about the Falconry Fund is it's a nonprofit corporation under the IRS, so any contribution that you make is also deductible towards your taxes. So if you have any other questions regarding the deductibility of your contribution or the taxes and purpose of the Falconry Fund, please contact its president, Alan K. Ayer, CPA, at 410-310-2733. Thank you. Hope you're enjoying the episode so far and hearing about some of Mark's experiences uh, getting into the sport and nest finding and other topics. And one of the things I wanted to still discuss with Mark was some of his training techniques and how he went from uh, training the different types of biases he's had. So let's jump right back into it. So anyway, going back to it before I digress there. Go ahead and start with how with how you uh, with how you manned and trained Dixie, the the, okay. old, the older one, and then let's kind of just talk about a couple of the differences in that, um, and how you raised you know the the later kind of non imprint versus the full imprint, okay. and just kind of go over some differences and how you how you did that. The the that's kind of where I was at about they're different when you first get them, mm-hmm. but then they seem to to meet back in the middle during the hunting season. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Dixie, since she was older, first first hurdle you have to get over is the fear factor. Naturally, right. she was scared to death. You know, she had to had to bring her weight down in order for her to start feeding. Mm-hmm. Uh, still, the same deal. No hand feeding. You know, when when they're when they're uh, that old, because there was no tweezer feeding or anything. When mm-hmm. I when I got her, she was already capable of ripping up her own food. Sure. So you have to try to figure out how do I get her uh, used to me but yet not, not st- hand feed her not starve to death <laughs> exactly and 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 not feed her with my hands and yet let her rip her own food up how do you make that connection well the easiest thing that i did was once i got her to start feeding on her own ripping ripping up quail and 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 doing her own feeding then it was it was almost immediately onto the lure mm-hmm. cuz she was older mm-hmm. so i was already past the whole hurdle of tweezer feeding and not letting them do the hand feeding thing. And sure. uh, uh, once I introduced the lure, as far as uh, take her out of her, her containment, uh, tied a quail onto the lure, and uh, then let her start tearing it off the lure. From there, it was out into the garage, still incapable of flying, but, uh, but feathered out. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it was off to putting the lure on the garage floor and just twitching along the floor. 
there and again. How much time elapsed from getting getting back and starting with those initial steps all the way up to the garage? It went quick. Uh, once once I got her to where uh, she was relaxed around me and where she could uh, uh, and was ripping her food up on her own. From there to the garage floor on the lure, I would say it probably didn't take me more than oh, I'd say four or five days. Hmm. Yeah, it went fast. Wow. It really did. So I guess that's probably another good a good thing to comment on then is just uh, how much faster sometimes exhibitors can go than, yes. than other species. And and then when you get into the whole sharp shin uh, aspect mm-hmm. of occipiters, mm-hmm. you can't hardly even keep up with that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like they're they're off and hunting in three weeks. Mm-hmm. So you pull them at four days, and three weeks to a month, mm-hmm. they're they're just about ready to go. Yeah. So I mean, you really got to move on with those. Yeah, I remember, uh, you know, the one that I ended up losing. I mean, I we, we had pulled that one from, from the nest, and he was pretty much fully, almost fully. Well, he still had some downy and stuff. But, yes. But I had him for three days, and he was already, you know, taking small baby quail and stuff. Yes. Um, but I, I, I know how fast those can go for sure. I just, it's interesting listening about the goshawks, though, because... You know, you you're anybody that that's that started traditionally, especially apprentices. You know, and obviously start with the passage red tails and whatnot. It's such a slow process initially, sometimes mm-hmm. and, and everything. And it's just interesting to hear how much faster, like uh, say, a goshawk can go as far as just you know the step to step to step to step to step. Because if you, and if you don't, I mean, what what happens if if you don't keep up with that? I mean, how much of a detriment is it to to the learning process for the bird and, and everything well, else? Well, I, I, mean, I was uh, I was lucky enough to where I pretty well kept up. I just Joe always told me never go backwards, always mm-hmm. always go forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you had to take little half steps or baby steps, but move forward. That that's what I always uh, tried to accomplish. Um, I would take, of course, I've, I raise quail, so uh, even even when the bird is is quite small, you can take a day old quail, mm-hmm. and uh, it's nothing for them to, to kill a little little day old quail and, yeah. and eat it. Now, of course, you're going to have falconers that say, "Well, that's not needed." Uh, some people do it differently, but it, but that's how I did it, and it mm-hmm. worked out really good for me. And then when I got up to the hard pinning, I done done she had done been killing already. She was already wedded to the lure really mm-hmm. well. Uh, so by the time I got ready to go to the field, all I had to do was get her weight right, figure out her weight, mm-hmm. and we was off and running. Right. So that that was the kind of the benefit of having an older bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I've got when I got the young bird, you you still end up at the same place. It's just you have to add a few more steps in the beginning. Right. As far as watch your hands, as far as as feeding and uh, uh, do the whole, like I said, I let them kill early on. I think it establishes that confidence that they need. Mm-hmm. And like Dixie, there is zero hesitation on jackrabbits, ducks, cottontails. I mean, and I still believe a lot of that is from her, her just confidence that if she wants it, she's going to get it. Right. And she is very, very confident. I lost out a little bit as far as the... Uh, the manning uh, as far as getting her down out of the trees and stuff. And that's simply because uh, I didn't keep her in the house mm-hmm. because I'm not just not going to have the mess in the house. And mm-hmm. she was a little older when I got her. Right. So I can see that, 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 that's a situation that uh, I probably should have worked a little harder on. Right. So with the, uh, with the fully imprinted bird then um, basically uh, what did you do in the initial steps to minimize the, the hand food, association and and what i mean what exactly did you do kind of like the uh the cover-up method or how did you go about doing that i did a little bit of both uh, at first i didn't want to pick the bird up no more than i have to get to remove her out of her little nest box mm-hmm. so uh i just simply used a piece of cardboard held put a divider in in there and then put the food on the other side of the divider mm-hmm. once she was able to feed off of the the little petri dish uh-huh. uh so that that eliminated my hand association with the food. Uh, before that, when she was real little, uh, I would just simply use the tweezers, uh, and then I ended up using a. Uh, I just went and got a real long stick mm-hmm. and sharpened it on the end. I'd stick a little piece yeah. of meat on it, and then run it in over the top of her head, just like mom would. Right. And that was real. And then once she started being able to feed on her own, but yet not ripping up food, then that's when I used the cardboard and uh, put it on the other side, then remove the cardboard, and there was her food. Gotcha. Okay. So I, I did that. Okay. So, you know, basically right before 
um, the the full right before the full hunting scenario, mm-hmm. like the, the legit hunts and everything. How did you go about drilling? It's more or less simulating a hunt. Right. Um, okay. Well, um, I tried something. There was the the drill technique. Put the put the uh, a long line on a on a cordless drill, tying a a dead rabbit or some fur on it, whichever you prefer, and then run it out there with the drill and and let the bird come off the the fist uh, as the as the dead rabbit ran away from you mm-hmm. uh, with somebody operating the drill that right. was winding the string up. That works really well. Mm. Now, having said that, I don't know that that was the cause of it or not, but it seemed like it slowed me down a little bit when I got out to the the wild cottontails. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed like the birds that I used the drill on had a little little more trouble getting started on those as opposed to Dixie. I did not use the drill on Dixie at all. I just simply got out in the September heat at the first of our season when the rabbits were small. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd find find little pockets of weeds in around mowed areas where I'd try to run the smaller rabbits out into the open. Right. And Dixie immediately took out after every one of them. Um, now, I don't know if the ones that I used on the drill were looking for the easier, you know, when the rabbit right. would turn or juke, it, if that had anything right. to do with it or not. But but I found that that uh, I, I would probably prefer just going out and doing the real thing, doing the real thing with the smaller game mm-hmm. uh, early in the year as opposed to the to the drill. Well, you, you did you did zero. Okay, so so everyone, so once again for everyone listening, zero was was um, the other goshawk that Mark had after Dixie. Yes, that and, was uh, an IS pull. Right, but it was young. Mm-hmm. You you trained her on on the drill too, though, I, right? I absolutely did. Yeah. I, I I did, and she came out of the same area in Wyoming as what Dixie did. Also, right. Uh, she was a younger bird. I thought I raised them pretty well. The same the same. Once mm-hmm. she got up to the age that Dixie was when I pulled her, mm-hmm. I did everything exactly the same. The only difference mm-hmm. is, is that I did use the drill, um, and she would not, she would not do jackrabbits at all. Right. It was just a, a she was basically the same size. Uh, mm-hmm. Dixie would fly about twenty nine and a half to thirty. Uh, I could fly uh, zero about twenty eight and a half to twenty nine. Mm-hmm. So there was a little. She was a little smaller, but. The confidence wasn't there. It, it wasn't. The confidence yeah. was not there as it was with Dixie. Could be just a personal issue with the bird, mm-hmm. or it could be the way I trained it. One I did with the lure. One I did not do with the, or excuse me, with the drag rabbit. Yeah. Uh, well, because because initially once you got to that step where, where you kind of mentioned that eventually you meet in the middle. Yes. And stuff. You, no matter what, either way, I mean, you you were already giving both birds you know even before they could fly quail and, and things like that right? absolutely so it, yes. it wasn't so much an issue of of the confidence difference in in the early onset right it was just yeah so i mean i guess you probably could almost attribute it more just an individual bird personality than maybe yes or something. It, it, so, it could either been that or, or the 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 drag because once like i said once her age got to the same age as what dixie was when i pulled her mm-hmm. then they were both on the same road right and i did everything exactly the same except one i used the drag rabbit the other one i did not gotcha. the uh the bird that i'd purchased from dennis samney uh which he actually hatched it in an incubator i think yeah it was not chamber raised and uh i did not use the drag rabbit on it that mm-hmm. was 100 percent full imprint mm-hmm. And uh, I have no issues with getting her back. She's a cross, though. She right? is yeah, a cross. Yeah. Finnish, yeah. A Finnish North American. Finnish right? North American. Okay. Uh, Jackrabbits all over them, just like a mad yep. wasp. Yeah, uh, and falconer's hands too. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's and those are the that was the point that I was making earlier about. It seems like uh, the one hundred percent purchased birds, uh, in my opinion the mistakes are amplified right. quite a bit because mm-hmm. there is zero fear and and you're usually the recipient recipient of uh, <laughs> of something gone wrong right so so real quick just uh before we we move on to the next uh just the next thought what what were the biggest mistakes overall that you felt you made with with each type of with each type of bird okay the i know right off the bat because it's the last one that i did was the uh the uh, cross that I have, mm-hmm. the biggest mistake there was preconceived notion. Uh-huh. That is the number one 
And Joel always told me, you're better off never asking what does one of these birds fly at. Right. Asking the breeder how much do how much do they usually weigh. Yep. That's bad because I took a preconceived notion of what I thought this bird should fly at. Mm-hmm. And of course, my lure response was Johnny on the spot mm. at that preconceived weight that I thought she should fly at. Mm. Sure enough, that's my weight. Yeah. So I go out after after jackrabbits. She's she was she just absolutely worried to death about everything other than subduing the jackrabbit. Even mm. after she would grab it, mm. you you didn't want to you didn't want to mess with her mm. because she was not she was not one hundred percent focused on that jackrabbit. She was focused mm. on everything going around. Now. Uh, you could have contributed that. Well, you got her too low. She's aggressive. No, it was exactly opposite. I was way too fat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I realized that after the first two jackrabbits, this bird's just way too fat because mm-hmm. uh, they act the same too fat as they would as they would too low. Mm-hmm. You need to get them focused on what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And once I dropped the uh, weight a couple ounces, which I didn't want to do because my preconceived notion says this bird should fly here. But right. in reality, it was not. So once gotcha. I figured the weight out, I was good to go. I thought, for some reason, I thought it was the opposite issue, though. I thought you I thought you initially thought maybe that she should have been lower and then you had her too low and you had to bump the weight back up. Did I have that confused? That is, that was my, that was my first thought that uh-huh. she was, she was too low and uh-huh. I need to bump that weight up to get uh-huh. that aggression out of her. Mm-hmm. That was wrong. Okay. And, and that's how I figured it out. The higher I went, the worse it got. Oh, okay. She still would not turn turn down game. She was all over everything. Right. But the control that I would have on on game was was just not there. Gotcha. Uh, okay. And so I thought this ain't working out. Gotcha. So I started going the other way. Yeah. And then when I hit the magic number of about, and she does about thirty and a half to thirty one is where she flies, mm-hmm. and uh, and I was under the impression, well, she's got finish in her. Yeah. Surely to God, this bird will fly at 35, 36. <laughs> but that was a mistake. So once I got the weight down where, where it needed to be, yeah. all the all the problems started to iron out, and uh, I, I was off yeah. and running. And that was her immature year. This will be her first uh, 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 once intermewed year will be this year. So we'll, we'll see how this goes. It's, it's hard to keep the facts straight sometimes whenever all you're doing is, is trying to focus on digging talons out of, exactly. out of people's we hands. Exactly. We had a little bit of an issue out there at Kansas. And, uh, a little bit of an issue. Yeah. Uh, but we, we, got it, we got it lined out. And, and uh, as, as long as you come out of it learning something and knowing something, mm. then, then you've done all right. But if you keep sure. repeating the same thing. Yeah, then, it's not good. It's not good. And, and I always said, and I told my apprentice, uh, Dwayne Wilhite, um, in, in the sport of falconry, what I what I have found and what I try to base it on is there's three easy steps mm-hmm. to be successful on falconry. One, can I get my bird back every time? Mm-hmm. Two, will it catch game for me? Mm-hmm. And three, is it not aggressive towards people? Mm-hmm. If you can accomplish all three of those, you're a success. Yeah. If you if you if you're missing one of them, then then you're you're probably just mediocre. But yeah. if you can get all three of those accomplished, that's about all you can ask for. Right. Well, and then there's I think there's you know there's there's other guys obviously that have other little um, I don't know kind of other finer points you know that kind of piggyback off those and stuff too. But I think those are are learned a little bit more as you as you keep growing as a as a falconer. And yes. Stuff too, yeah. Sure. And, and and it definitely especially with the acipiters. Um, I just thank God I had Joe in my back pocket mm-hmm. um, to, to, to start out with one yeah, all on your own. Easy to mess up. They're easy to mess up. Very, and, and, and phone calls, they're, they're great. But you really need to hook up with somebody that's got a little bit of experience with one to walk right beside of you in a hunting situation mm-hmm. or a problem that you're having. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some great books out there. McDermott's yeah. got some good ones. You know, there's... There's some yeah. good ones out there. So. so basically the moral of the story with them, the most important thing, that we I know you've mentioned it to me several times, is just kind of forget about the weight and, and read the bird. That That is 100% a sipiter. Yeah. That's 101 right there. Read yeah. your bird. Um, I walked out to the news today. Well, she had one foot pulled up. I walked mm-hmm. out to the news yesterday, and she smacked the window. Yeah. I mean, there's something going on. You <laughs> right. read the little bit of, I walked up on her when she was on a cottontail. She left the cottontail and grabbed me by the pants leg. Yeah. Last week, I walked up. She wasn't even mandolin. Uh, the trade-off went well. What happened? What's different here? Mm-hmm. Something's a little bit different. You mm-hmm. read those little bit of, of because uh, the bird's telling you exactly what it needs. It really right. is. Mm-hmm. And when you boil it all down, 
once you've got your bird man down, when you cut through all the smoke, mm. it's it's mainly weight is up or weight is down. Right. That there's no more to it than that. Yeah. That's just about basically it. Once you got your manning uh, process completed, that's all you can do. Yeah, that's it's a good way of looking at it. And you know, I, I think I think there's so many times where guys, especially the ones that aren't as experienced and stuff, they they try and look at every single little little thing aside from from the actual real problem right and and it seems like that just in turn keeps causing more problems for them and keeps spinning their wheels and and all of a sudden they've got a head case of a bird and right. you know it's, right. it's it's sad to see sometimes and, and sometimes each individual bird has its own attitude you know uh uh dixie is is different than uh than zero and zero is different than than uh furs that i have now mm-hmm. and uh even though you do everything exactly the same one bird turns out this way and one bird turns out that way so read each individual bird uh to the best of your ability mm-hmm. and and talk with somebody that's got some experience yeah. and and to, to to get that bird going if 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 this bird doesn't like trains come roaring by and you got a bird that's relaxed around trains then hunt the bird that's relaxed <laughs> around trains <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's you yeah. can't read too much into it. Just right. just you know, uh, if they got a fear, don't don't irritate them. Mm-hmm. You know. Cool. Well, I mean, as far as uh, just kind of a final note, I kind of want to talk about sharp shins a little bit. And yeah. um, I mean, you've you've flown the one sharp shin and stuff. And um, I what what do you as far as finding the nest and stuff for those? What recommendations do you have for that? Those that's that's where I I. Uh, I really enjoy. I really mm-hmm. enjoy. I'm not much of a micro uh, falconer as far as uh, bird on bird stuff. Uh, uh, I'm not much of a micro, but I absolutely love nest hunting and figuring out the sharp shins of, of southern Indiana because that's what we have around here mm-hmm. and Cooper's hawks. And uh, me and Joe's worked for many, many years on, on this, and, and we've got it down to pretty well a science in our area. And, and, and for the most part, it should work all over the United States, a little bit different time timelines and stuff, but mm-hmm. basically it should work on how to find your sharp shin nest. We've wrote a couple articles. If you're if you're familiar with American Falconry magazine, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. we we've wrote step by step, uh, and and we have had a few falconers call us up and and thank us for the article that they're now using it in Tennessee, and uh, there was one guy using it in New Mexico. And the procedure is working. It, it does work. And, and we've figured out a timeline, what works, what don't, what to look for, what not to. Gotcha. Okay. Well, so overall, you, you finally, as far as here, though, you find them more in, in pines, though. Always. Right? Yeah, always. Always in pines. pines. And we've established over the years, every time we would go out, he would compile notes and I would compile notes. And then we would compare our notes. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of about nine years, uh, we've we've come up with some pretty rock solid uh footnotes on sharp shins and a few of them are in southern indiana they're in pine trees mm-hmm. it might be might be a white pine might be a shortleaf pine georgia pine they're going to be in a pine tree gotcha that's that's rule number one rule number two we have never found a uh, a sharp shin in a pine lot that was not surrounded by at least three sides of hardwoods mm. So when you find your pine lot, three sides of hardwoods, it could have a road across the front of it, but three sides is hardwoods. Every every sharp shin nest we found has been that away. Huh. Now I want to interject. It is nature, and and <laughs> and because I'm saying this yeah. doesn't mean that right. it, it can't happen. And I want to and I want to prove a little point here on on the next one. The the uh, third uh, point that I want to bring up is. During the timeline here in southern Indiana, it starts April the 6th. Mm-hmm. If you get out in the woods April the 6th with your, with your call, they're going to answer if they're, in the, if they're in that particular pine lot. Mm-hmm. Now, we have never went back to a pine lot after initially calling it April the 6th or three weeks later. We've never went back and located a sharp shin hawk in a nest site that we have previously called that same year. So if you go in there on April the 6th and you don't get a hit, and then you go back in on the 15th, you're still not going to get a hit. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, this year was the first year that that has ever happened. Huh. We called a pine lot on April the 8th, did not get a response, wrote it off, no bird. We 
even though it's our theory, we still double check them every year. <laughs> and we went back later in that year, and that's the first time we went back the later that year, whether she was out hunting, maybe she showed up later, whatever, but there, it was active later in the year. Gotcha. That was one nest, one time. And hmm. we have found as many as 15 nests in one year. So that, that that's something to consider if you go in during your timeline and you don't and you don't find one in, in a particular pine lot, don't spend a lot of time in there, because for the most part, except for the one exception, we've never went back. It's been a waste of time to go back and double check sites from the previous from the previous, uh, not the previous year, but the previous time frame of the same year. Right earlier, yeah, a couple weeks before. Whatever. Right. Gotcha. Cool. Point number four. We call it the three and out. We have never found an active sharp shin nest in a particular pine lot more than three years in a row. It's never happened. Hmm. Three years in a row, the nest is usually within 100 yards of the previous year's nest, almost always. It's within 100 yards. Three times in a row, we mark all of our sites, check 2018, 2019, 2020, 2017, Hmm. and we check. So it's easy to look at your chart and see three checks, 2017, 2018, 2019. Yeah, probably not going to be there in 2020. 2020 is yeah. probably not going to be there. Could gotcha. be an exception. We will check. Yeah. But it's never happened yet. Three but, and out is what we call that. That'll be the next Falconer rule that, that'll get proven exactly. wrong. Exactly. <laughs> nothing, nothing solid in, 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 in nature. So. so real quick, just to, just as, a, as an ending note then, so you, you get your, uh, you your sharpshin chick and uh are they are they basically like you know small small gosses then i mean no, no. They, well, how, how do you go about how do, what's the difference in, in in as far as except everything that's sped up and everything then what would you tell everybody as far as the difference in in raising one versus a versus a goshawk absolutely if 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 i was to advise someone that wants to try an acipiter Absolutely, definitely start off with a sharp shin. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can, you can look at our article and try to find them in your area. Uh, me or Joe may be able to help you out a little bit. Uh, our name's out there. We can definitely give you some pointers in your area on what to look for and how to, how to go about it. But I would advise starting out with a sharp shin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not. I started out with a passage coop. I would definitely not advise that for anybody. <laughs> uh, Cooper's Hawk, I think, is the hardest of the three. Of course, there's going to be falconers that disagree, but in my opinion, they're, they're the hardest. Uh, the goshawk is the second one. The sharp shin, the hardest thing about the sharp shin is just trying to determine if you got a male or a female mm-hmm. because they're so tiny when you get them. A four-day-old sharp shin is about as big around as a golf ball. Right. So to try and say you got a female and you'll be able to do quail in your area or if you end up with a male, you know, you're going to have to, have to adjust what you can hunt with them mm-hmm. because you ended up with a male. That's the number one hardest thing with a sharp shin. They're very forgiving as far as mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you do make a mistake and, and say you've got one that's semi-aggressive, mm-hmm. it, it's a sharp shin. Yeah. It's, it's not a, <laughs> it's, it's not a goshawk. It's hunt. not going to peel your face exactly. off. Exactly. <laughs> so, so that's, that's a little easier there. It, they do seem to be a little bit more of a short term, uh, falconry bird. They're real, um, susceptible to windows, uh, they oh, seem yeah. to be. They Ugh. seem to be jumpy. Uh, they Ugh. seem to be a little more uh, just prone to accidents yep. because they're so small. Cooper's hawks just love to come out of nowhere and snatch one. Yep. So I would say they're they're more of a short term uh, sipiter, but but they are uh, they are fun and they are they're quick as far mm. as. As, as manning one down and getting out in the field and getting to hunting starlings or, or house sparrows or whatever you may may have, uh, it, it goes fast with a Sharpie. It really does. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, I mean, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know being the uh, the exhibitor guy that you are and all and just, you know, being Mark Herman, you uh, have a hard enough time keeping your butt planted in one spot for, for uh, any prolonged period of time. Yeah, this, so, this, this was just about my time limit. Yeah, here. I know. Gonna... I, I, I saw you start to fidget and everything there and start doing <laughs> yeah. the, the Mark Hermanisms with yeah. all the, the, the hand writhing and everything else. And I know that usually means uh, it's time for me to, to go. So anyway, um, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, uh, it's always fun. And uh, Thanks for coming uh, over, John. And I, yeah. I appreciate you. And what a little bit of advice I've got. Um, 
you know, I hope it benefits somebody. Yeah, well, if nothing else, it's always entertaining. Exactly. We'll do this again sometime, but, uh, you know, as always, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, until next time, we will catch you all later. Thanks. Thank you. Always good getting to hang out with, catch up with Mark and talk shop. And it's always good to have him and and the other Southern Indiana guys here as a resource to help out with different projects and also for the occasional quail and and just the overall advice and and helping hands. So appreciate the time as always to Mark and, um, you know, for, for his input. So hope you enjoyed it. As always, thank you again so much to the Falconry Fund for making the podcast possible. If you have any donations that you want to make, just please go to falconryfund.org. Any donations are always greatly appreciated because they go a long way towards future endeavors and for making future content for you all. Please subscribe, if you haven't already, to our social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, etc. And if you ever need to contact us or have any questions, comments, recommendations for guests, just reach us at www.falconryfund.org slash contact. Or you can always reach us by email at falconryfund at gmail.com and just mention podcast in the subject line. Once again, I am John Munyer. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. And everyone be safe until next time. And until then, take care. Thank you so much.